0: My name is Bill, and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. We love it when new folks uh, come and check out our services each and every week. And so if you are new with us today, hopefully uh, you feel at home, you are welcomed. Um, But if you do have any questions about the church or anything uh, that you hear in the message this morning, I would love to visit with you afterwards. Uh, Or if I just didn't get a chance to meet you, I'd love to uh, have the opportunity opportunity to introduce myself um, to you this morning. So I'll be available at our... Um, guest area at the desk out there, just kind of hang out in that space. And so would love to visit with you for just a, a little bit after the service this morning. I'm kind of talking real fast now because we got a long way to go this morning. So um, I'm gonna, I told Cody, I'm going to do the best that I can to get through everything today and get us out on time. So we should probably pray and just get started. Father, as we come before your presence, I, I pray this morning that you would Be at work in our hearts and lives. God, I pray that you would bring conviction so that we can live the life that you have given to us, the abundant life that you've given to us, so that we can be a reflection of who you are. Um, Father, in light of just the world around us, I think it, it is so easy to be influenced by the pressures of life and the things that go on around us but God I, I pray that today over the next few minutes that you would through the, the the power of the gospel and through the instructions that we read in your word that you would show us how to live um, because God you have called us as your people to be different and um, God I pray that we would understand that a little bit more today and so I pray God that everything that I say today would be um Ultimately, it would be coming from you, that it would be done for your honor and glory. And Father, I pray that each and every one of us who are gathered here would ultimately say that that is the goal of our lives, to live in such a way that pleases and honors you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Somewhere around 2004, 2005, I began a message by playing uh, the song, Where's the Love? by the Black Eyed Peas. And as I was beginning to prepare for this morning's message, I was reminded of that song again. And I'm not going to play it for you today, but I do want you to listen to some of the words. What's wrong with the world, mama? People living like they ain't got no mama. Like the world's addicted to drama. Drama. Only attracted to the things that bring you trauma. People killing, people dying. Children hurt, hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? Would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people got me questioning where's the love? I feel the weight of the world on my shoulder. As I'm getting older, y'all, people getting colder. Most of us only care about money-making. Selfishness got us following the wrong direction. Wrong information always shown, shown by the media. Negative images is the main criteria. Infecting the young minds faster than bacteria. Kids want to act like what they see in the cinema, yo. Whatever happened to the values of humanity? Whatever happened to fairness and equality? Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity. Lack of understanding leading us away from unity. It's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling under. It's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling down. There's no wonder why sometimes I'm feeling under. Got to keep my faith alive till love is found. Now ask yourself, where's the love? Will I am wrote that song in 2003 because he was recognizing some things within our culture that he felt like weren't right. And I would argue that now 20 years later, it's only gotten worse. Because it seems like some people just enjoy being mad. In fact, author and researcher Ed Stetzer, Stetzer, he coined this, the age of outrage in his book from 2018 called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And at the beginning of the book, he laid out reasons why he felt like things are the way that they are, why this is the age of outrage. And so there are several different reasons, but one of those really caught my eye. And he called it the downside of teams. So in his discussion on the downside of teams, he said this, Herein lies the danger. Teams have a tendency to cultivate devotion to both their collective objective and to one another at the expense of other teams. In other words, our sense of sameness or solidarity, a common identity and mission, inevitably conflicts with other groups. In something trivial like sports, this is obvious. In order for your team to win, the other team needs to lose. And I think part of what we are seeing happening within our culture today is the idea that the best way to win, the easiest way for me to win, is by causing someone else to lose. And you don't necessarily have to agree with me in, in this, but I'm I'm gonna say it anyway. I think this is what's wrong with our politics today. You can't win by having the best policy or the best ideas. That doesn't win. So the easiest way to win is to make somebody else lose. To tell you how evil, not just bad they are, but how evil they are. I win by making someone else lose. Shows up at the middle school lunch table. There is so much pressure on our kids today. We do it as parents. Society kind of does it a little bit to to perform, to measure up to certain standards, that kids just don't know how to handle that pressure. And so the easiest thing for them, in the midst of all of their insecurity, is to tear someone else down. They win by causing someone else to lose. It's been happening for a long time. It's always been a part of the lunch table conversation, especially in middle school. I mean, I remember what it was like to be in middle school, and it was there then. But the things that kids say today sometimes are horrible. I'll give you an example, and this isn't necessarily something that's really bad, but it's just something that we've dealt with in our family just this last week. Our daughter Caroline, she's 12 years old and in the seventh grade, and on multiple occasions this week, she came home and told me that there was a girl in her class that said she'll never go to college. This is my daughter who is in all advanced classes and gets straight A's. It is not about my daughter, it's about the insecurities of another child. Because she's believing the easiest way for me to win is by making someone else lose. And this would be one of those things that's really easy to look outside and say what's wrong with them, but the truth is it can affect all of us. There are some Christians on social media that their sole existence on social media is to tear down and point out the evils of other people's ministries. I win by making someone else lose. And I'll tell you, I'm not immune to it either. I hope I don't ever do this publicly, but I'll tell you privately I have a tendency to be hypercritical of others. And I'm sure it's because of my own insecurity. But sometimes it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I win when somebody else loses. But that attitude has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. It's around us all the time, but it can't be a part of our lives. And so what I want to do today is... To answer the question, how do we win? Rather than winning by causing someone else to lose, how do we actually win? As we continue our series, Walk Like a Christian, with today's, the title of today's message being Christians Walk in Love. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. Eventually, um, we'll finish out the entire book uh, right around Thanksgiving we are in Ephesians 5, 1 through 14 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen as I read it. Or if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can navigate your way to our live event. Or it, there is a QR code on the back of the card that you um, got on your way in this morning, hopefully. And, and you can use that uh, QR code to take you to the, the web version of our live event. Let me, let me read this section for us. Ephesians 5 starting verse 1 Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God but sexual immorality and impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable but rather giving thanks For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to even mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. At the very beginning of this section, there's two things that are really important. It says, therefore, be imitators of God And walk in love. Genesis 1 26 and 27, it is there that we read that humanity was created in the image of God. So, to be created in the image of God, what that means is that all that we are is to be a reflection of all that God is. And so, hopefully, all of us understand that God's desire for us is to grow in our ability to be a reflection of who God is, grow in our our ability to, to live out the character of God. To imitate God. The second thing that we read is to walk in love. That might be a little bit more abstract, wondering what that is. Because love is sometimes defined as a feeling or this concept. We might be able to, we might understand what it is, maybe even be able to come up with a a definition for it. But when we hear the words walk in love, you might wonder exactly what that means on a daily basis. So I'm going to tell you what it means. To imitate God. Is to walk in love. As we read that in that first verse, it seems like there are two separate things that are listed there. Be imitators of God, that's the first command, and the second one in verse two, and walk in love. But in reality, those two things, as Paul lays them out, they're parallel concepts. To imitate God is to walk in love. To walk in love is to imitate God. Now, if we are to imitate God, that word imitate could actually be understood as mimic. It's literally doing what you see someone else doing. And so then the question is, if we're to imitate God or mimic God, the way for us to be able to do that is that we have to know who God is. And so for just a few minutes this morning, I want you to think about who you believe that God is. If you could describe God in one or two words at his very core, what words would you use to describe who God is? Maybe some of you would say that God is the mighty smiter. In the movie Bruce Almighty, with starring Jim Carrey, Bruce's character, Bruce his life is just falling apart. All of these bad things are happening. He doesn't understand why. And so in frustration, he gets into his car and just begins to drive. And as he's driving, he asks God for a sign. And there's a sign that says, road closed ahead. And he keeps driving, and there's another sign that says, turn around, the road is going to end. And he pays no attention to the signs in front of him. Eventually, he wrecks his car and gets out. And at the top of his lungs, he shouts, the gloves are off. Smite me, O oh mighty smiter. But that's the way that a lot of people view God. Somebody who's out there somewhere simply playing with our emotions, doing good things to some people that he won't do for me, and it seems like he delights in my misery, waiting until I mess up so that he can punish me. In fact, I even heard a message recently. And in that message, it said that the reason that the people of Israel had to offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement was to satisfy the wrath of God. And you can be careful because if that is all that you believe, it would be really easy to fall into the trap of thinking. And on that day of atonement, God was crossing his fingers, hoping that they'd forget. And that God was really disappointed when they did offer that sacrifice because he couldn't let out his wrath on all the people. Imitate God. Maybe the reason that some people enjoy pointing out all the flaws in everybody else seem to delight in the misery of other people is because they're imitating the God that they believe in. But that is not who God has revealed himself to be. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everything, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knows not God because God is love. Now, it's really important to understand it doesn't say that we're supposed to love other people because God loves people. It doesn't say that we're supposed to love people because one of the core characteristics of who God is is that God is love. No, it says we are to love because God is love. That is who God has revealed himself to be. And so for us to imitate God, we must reveal that love. Now, some of you might be thinking, that can't be all that God is, because what about what we read in the Old Testament? It's there that we read stories of the mighty smiter, just waylaying the enemies of the people of Israel. It seems like there were even times when God enjoyed the fact that he could punish his own people. Like, what about that? And I do think that there are some conversations that we need to have related to that. There's more study that's needed um, in relation to to some of the things that we read about in the Old Testament. In fact, after the first of the year, we are planning to do a series where we are going to talk about how God is good in light of some of the things that we read in the Old Testament. But as we look at those things, the question is not how do I feel about God as I read these events, but maybe a better question is, how do the people feel about God who lived through those events? And that we have an answer to. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not treat us according to our, as our sins deserve, repaying us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has f- removed our transgressions from us. That's the people of Israel. They knew God as being a God of love. And it's not just the Israelites either. The story of Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, this exceedingly wicked city, and tell them that he was going to destroy their city. Jonah got on a boat heading in the opposite direction. Ultimately, Jonah got swallowed by a fish, spit up onto land, and did in fact go to Nineveh, even though he didn't want to go. He got there and told the people that God said he was going to destroy their city. And immediately the people gathered together under the leadership of their king and they repent of their sins and they say, we need to do this so that maybe God would forgive us and would relent of what he has said. And that's exactly what happened. At the end of the book, we find Jonah pouting under a tree and God says, Jonah, what are you doing here? And he says, this is why I didn't want to come because I knew who you were. I knew they would repent, and you wouldn't do what you said you would do. 1 John 4 makes clear what people in the Old Testament knew about God, that God is love. So for us to imitate God is to walk in love. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in love? Does that mean in light of who God is that we reciprocate that love to God? would say, yes, we, we need to love God, but to walk in love, to imitate God and walk in love, that's actually love extended to other people. As Paul is writing these words to the church in Ephesus, they may not have heard them before, but this was not a new concept. This was something that was a part of the fabric and history and tradition of the people of Israel. In fact, we read the words of Philo, who was a Jewish historian and philosopher. He died about 50 A.D. He said that you need to imitate God the very best that you can and do so by extending kindness and forgiveness to other people. To imitate God is to walk in love. To walk in love is to extend love to other people. And that love that we are to extend to other people is exemplified in the life of Jesus. It's exemplified in our Messiah who willingly laid down his life for us so that we could be brought into a relationship with God. Romans chapter 5 says this. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. And the idea is it, you'd be really hard-pressed to find somebody who would be willing to die for someone who was just known as being a good person. For a good man, someone might dare to die. And the idea here is, if you've received goodness from that person, maybe you would find more people who would be willing to die for somebody like that, who would receive goodness from them. But that's not what Jesus did. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love that we are, extend, we are to extend to other people It's not love that's given to people who are like us, who think like us, who act like us, who have everything together. It is to extend love to people who think very differently than us, see the world differently than we do. Maybe even do things that we feel like are wrong. That's what it means to love other people in the way that Jesus loved us. See, we don't win because we cause someone else to lose. We win when we are willing to lose. As we continue, we begin to see a warning in verse 3, but sexually immoral and impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. It's really easy when we read those words to begin to look outside or stand in our ivory tower and look out at all the bad people who do the bad things and wonder what's wrong with them. But the purpose of these words written by the apostle Paul are not for us to look outside at the sins of other people, but they're to look for us to look inside inside the sins of our own heart. And Paul's point is this that self-indulgent sensuality and greed are the opposites of the love that we should walk in and therefore have no place in the life of a believer. This is, I think, one of my soapboxes. And so most of you have probably heard me say this many, many times before. If you haven't heard me say this, you're going to hear me say it now. Every book of the Bible is written to real places with real people who had real problems. And as Paul is writing these lists of sins, they are not a random list of sins. These are things that are embedded in the life and culture of Ephesus that Paul needs to address. One of the things you got to understand is that self-indulgent sensuality and promiscuity was rampant in the world of Ephesus in the first century. There were temple prostitutes who were always available so that acts of sexuality could be viewed as acts of worship. Understand, self-gratification was worship. And Paul says, that's not the way that we are because of Jesus. And so he's, as he's writing, he is talking about, yes, these acts, but even more so than just the acts, there's an attitude or a belief behind them. And I think really what Paul is addressing here is the attitude that says, the world exists for my pleasure. So therefore, I will do what I want, when I want, how I want, to meet whatever needs I have, regardless of what that does to anyone else, because the world revolves around me. And again, before we're too quick to just look outside and talk about other people, understand that attitude affects all of us many times in ways that we don't even see. I'm sure at least some of you are familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages, there's a big part of me that wishes that book had never been written. The reason being is because people use it in the exact opposite way from how it was intended. If you're not familiar with the book, it describes five love languages or five ways that people receive love. Those five languages are time, gifts, touch, words of affirmation, and acts of service. And the idea behind the book is to help us to understand the way in which our spouses receive love. But rather than using it in the way that it was intended, it is often used as a weapon. My spouse doesn't do for me what I want him or her to do for me. I mean, I've heard this so many times over the years. This is my love language, and my spouse isn't doing what I need her to do. But what's the belief behind it? This relationship, ultimately, it's about me. That self-indulgent sensuality that has no place in the life of a Christian greed, it is baked into our culture. We have to have more. We always need more. Corporate greed is what tells salespeople. You have to sell more next month than you did last month, and that's true every single month, and oftentimes competing against other people that you are working with. I just heard somebody say this last week that like, you should just cut the bottom 10% of your company to create performance incentives. What does that do? Well, I win when somebody else loses. The easiest way for me to win is by making someone else lose. And this is no part of the life of a follower of Jesus. The reason being is that those beliefs, that the world revolves around me, this self-indulgent attitude where I can have more regardless of what it does to other people, and I always need more, that is antithetical to the gospel that says when I could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything. A core message of the gospel is that it's not about And that should cause us all to really stop and question the condition of our hearts. Because we live in a world that says, I will do what I want. Nobody can tell me what to do because life ultimately is all about me. That's not the gospel. As we continue, we see a little bit of a warning. It says, that these things should not even be heard of among you. Meaning that it's not just about the act, but as Paul is writing, he says, don't even talk about these things, don't even think about these things. Sometimes we think, well, as long as I don't do it, then I'm okay. But Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11, what flows out of a man is what defiles him, meaning it comes from within. So when we find ourselves talking about it or thinking about it, that normalizes the behavior, and so as we think, so we do. But then the warning gets even stronger. For know, verse 5, and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ And of God. Think about that. No sexually immoral or impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. I want to make sure you understand the warning because the warning is not to written to people that have committed these things in the past. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a very similar type list at the end of which he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were cleansed. So it's not about somebody who did them in the past. I don't believe that this warning is written specifically to people who are struggling against those things in the present. But this warning is written to people who this is their way of life. Who are living a life of self-indulgence and greed and sexual immorality and they're pursuing those things as a course of life that we could look at and say that is who they are. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And you might think, well wait, I mean is that fair like what if they, what if they pray a prayer and, and do the things? And I understand that I, I, On some level, maybe we want to be gracious to people, but I want you to stop and think about it for a second. What is eternal life? Most of us would say eternal life is what happens to us when we die. We get to go to heaven when we die. The problem with that answer, though, is that's not how the Bible defines eternal life, because John defines it relationally. It's to know the Father and the Son whom he sent. It's not just what happens when we die. If it's just what happens when we die, then it doesn't matter how we live. So here's how I would describe eternal life. It's being in a relationship with God that should change everything about us and last forever. And so let me ask you this. If there is no change, then what do you have? If we recognize that the work that God wants to do in our lives when he brings us to faith in Jesus has changed everything about us and there is never change, then what is there? Walk in love is to imitate God, this self-indulgent sensuality and greed. They're the opposites of the love that we should walk in and therefore have no place in the life of a believer. Finally, here's the last thing I want you to know. By walking in love and light, we have the opportunity to point people to Jesus. In the text that we're looking at this morning, there's really two different paragraphs. There's the first paragraph in verses 1 through 5, and then the second paragraph in verses 6 through 14. And I recognize what time it is. We don't have time at all to really get into the second paragraph. But here's what I want you to know. Basically, more than anything else, what Paul says in the second paragraph is kind of a restatement of what he says in the first. The point is the same. He uses different language. He says, first, walk in love. The second one's walk in light. Ultimately, what he's highlighting is that there's to be a difference in terms of how we live. So as followers of Jesus, as we live differently, as we walk in light, then we're able to expose the deeds of darkness. As we expose the deeds of darkness, then we then have the opportunity to point people back to Jesus who can rescue them as well. So Let's circle back to where we started. Where's the love? How do we win? We do not win by causing someone else to lose. Where we think the world revolves around us and so I will do whatever I want. I will stand for my rights all the time because that's when I win. That's not how we win. That's just participating in the deeds of darkness with them. But rather, it's my hope that God would begin to transform our hearts through the power of the gospel and the example of Jesus who did not win when his enemies lost, but Jesus won when he lost, when he laid down his life for us to rescue us from our sins and give us hope for a blessed future. So we win Not when we cause other people to lose, but we win when we are willing to lose. Rather than fighting for our rights, we win when we're willing to see the best in people, to extend love and forgiveness to all people. And as we do that, we extend the love of Jesus to the world around us and have the opportunity to point people to Jesus. And that's what our lives as followers of Jesus are to be about anyway. We win. Not when we cause somebody else to lose, but we win when we are willing to lose. We pray with me, Heavenly Father.